0: We are studying through the Book of Acts together, and we have finished Chapter One. Bob said it couldn't be done. Um, we were uh, we were twenty studies in Chapter One, and so because we're moving so fast now, I thought I would slow it down today and uh, take our time with the beginning of Chapter Two. Uh, I don't want to go too deeply into Chapter Two this morning because. Um, we have next we have next sunday as father's day i'll probably do a father's day focused message uh, two weeks from today as i just mentioned is the church picnic so we won't be doing a study at all that day and then three weeks from today uh, lord willing is uh, home church and so we'll be we'll be meeting in homes and we'll be uh, focused on the new testament exhortations that we're studying through so it's really going to be a month until we're back to acts and there's some continuity there that i don't want to disrupt in the study but there is something here in the beginning of the chapter that's worth an entire study even though it may not at casual reading level it may not seem to be worth an entire study so what i want to do today is kind of pull a martin lloyd jones and what i mean by that is uh for those who are currently going through the uh, book of romans together uh following lloyd jones uh studies um you'll you've already learned that he can at times uh pick like a single word and just focus an entire study on that one word like at the beginning of romans when he uh started reading paul and then he he never got beyond the name of paul and he had to stop and uh fill in all kinds of background and details about the apostle paul so that you would really grasp who it was that was writing the book and why he was writing it and what was going on in the writing of it um There's going to be a similar kind of approach here this morning in verse 1 of chapter 2, but let me go ahead and just read the first four verses, which are the actual uh, beginning events, of course, of the day of Pentecost, and then uh, we'll focus on a specific phrase in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now eventually when we do get back next month to our Acts study, uh, we'll, we'll probably spend at least or three maybe four studies in these first four verses because there's so much in there for us to fully understand but for today i just want to focus on the name of the day of the event that is taking place which is in verse one when the day of pentecost arrived so what we have here is we have a, a group of 120 of the close disciples of the lord jesus we saw this at the end of chapter one They're gathered in the upper room. They're staying in obedience to the command of the Lord Jesus. They're staying in the city of Jerusalem, even though he's given them a great commission and he's told them, go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel. He told them, don't leave yet. Stay in the city of Jerusalem and wait. And they're not passively waiting. We see at the very end of chapter one that they're very actively waiting. They're praying in a very unified way, 120 in a in a continuing 10-day long prayer meeting doesn't mean that was the only thing they did for 10 days but they were consistently praying for those 10 days and what they're praying about is they're they're praying for the unfolding of the, the Lord's next big event and his purposes which is what's going to happen here on the day of Pentecost and I'm sure they're praying in in order for their hearts to be in the right place the right prepared a spiritual condition when that day finally did arrive and so here in chapter two the day of pentecost now arrives and they are as it's describing in in chapter one verse one i mean chapter two verse one they are still assembled in that one location in the upper room and then all of the events from verse two through verse four of what actually happened and what they experienced they hear a specific kind of sound they see a, a specific kind of spiritual phenomenon with their eyes, and then they all experience a very unusual phenomenon where they begin to speak in languages that they have not naturally learned. So we're, gonna, we're going to look at each one of those elements and each one of those details and uh, take our time looking at them as we should. But for today, I, I want us to, in a sense, try to it's it's difficult but i want to try to transport us back into their perspective when this day finally arrives because when i read the words i'm just talking about my culture the the social influence that i grew up under my household my family um what i knew and what i understood if you had said to me when the day of pentecost arrived I would have heard the words and they wouldn't have had much significant meaning in terms of of setting my perspective in a specific direction like it did for all 120 that were gathered in the upper room that day and not just for them but also all of the inhabitants some of whom were permanent residents and some of whom were just visiting residents that were in the city of Jerusalem on the day when these events actually unfolded the day of Pentecost was a special day for the Jewish people it wasn't the only special day but it was a significant special spiritual day because it was an ordained day by the Lord as what we would call using modern terminology now it was a holiday on the calendar Um, it's kind of been lost over you know generations of time but our word holiday comes from a specific concept of think about it holy day that's where we get our holiday concept and uh, not all holidays today are are necessarily holy days and certainly the way our culture recognizes them and celebrates them is for the most part devoid of any real holiness but um, for the jewish people The special days on their calendars that we call holidays that they experienced as holy days truly were meant to be that because they were actually commanded by the Lord in his law. And there were in the law of God seven of them, not six and not eight. And you probably already have some preliminary understanding that the total number of these special days that the Lord ordained was seven purposefully in the sense that um, just as the lord had done the work of creation at the beginning of all of history in genesis chapter one and he did that work in a total a nice complete week of seven days uh, these seven special holy days that the lord commanded and ordained for his people functioned in that way they were a week of special days not just one block one week all celebrated one after another in the calendar but interspersed throughout the calendar year and each one of these seven feast days and I'll just name them for you uh the first was passover i think uh, most of us are familiar with several of these and one or two of them don't get as much attention and may not be as familiar to us so passover was the first the uh, feast of unleavened bread then the third was the feast of first fruits which i'm going to point out was directly connected to the day of pentecost and then following the day of first fruits was the day of pentecost then following that the day of trumpets or the feast of trumpets then the sixth one was uh, the one that probably gets the most attention among believers in terms of study the day of atonement which most directly and in the greatest way Uh, signifies the sacrifice of christ and the cross and then finally the feast of booths or also known as the feast of tabernacles where the lord commanded his people to move out of their homes wherever they happen to dwell for a week of time and go live in tents in order to remind themselves of their um, journey from the saving journey the redeeming journey that they took from egypt throughout the wilderness journeys into eventually the promised land where they had settled so each one of these seven feast days pointed in two directions at the same time and both of these directions are super important one ultimately of these two directions is more important than the other the first direction they pointed is they pointed to events that they were familiar with events that they had experienced events that that signified that the lord had worked among them like i gave the example of the feast of booths so they're to move out of their homes and move into tents for a week and there to in a sense play act for that week the experiences of their forefathers as they had journeyed from egypt in uh, through the wilderness and eventually into the promised land so that that feast was pointing back to that event and saying you need to understand the spiritual principles that are signified by those events and you need to understand how the lord was at work in the midst of you as his people in order to bring you from one spiritual condition to another spiritual condition lost and enslaved to eventually found by the lord delivered by the lord and redeemed and saved by the lord and settled into the land of promise But each one of these seven feasts pointed to not the same repeating themes. It wasn't like the Lord said, I just want you seven times a year to remember the exact same spiritual principles and just repeat them seven times until you get them. Each one of the feasts pointed to different principles, different aspects of the Lord's work in their midst, and were meant to teach them different things about their relationship with the Lord both individually and corporately as his chosen people. Now, there's a second direction that they pointed, and this is, as I mentioned, an even more, direct, even more important and, and significant direction than the first, and that is these feasts also pointed forward. Let me um, share with you a, Prince, a New Testament passage that kind of explains this for us in a, in a helpful way. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, So these feasts, these seven feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Booths, they all pointed first and foremost to the events of the Lord's interaction with his people during the context of their time, their lives, their experiences. But they also pointed forward in history to events that had not yet happened. They pointed forward in what This passage describes as a foreshadowing way. And they're pointing ultimately forward to Christ and his relationship to his people, the church. And of course, that now includes us. So let's read from Colossians chapter two, and I'll just read uh, verses 16 and 17. Paul teaches the Colossians and says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, Paul is not just listing an arbitrary list of things of, hey, you know, don't let people be get all judgy about you in regards to your diet and how many calories you're eating. He's not talking about food and drink from that perspective, though, you know, that certainly is an issue, but that's not a a spiritual issue in the way that this is. And he adds to the the concern of not allowing others to judge you in regards to food and drink, but he mentions festivals. And by using the word festival, he is specifically referring to this list of seven special holy days that I've already given to you from God's law. These are the seven God-ordained feast days. They were also known as festivals because on these feast days, these were not events where the people of God were to just stay in their own homes and in the privacy of their own homes, celebrate them, but they were to come out of their homes and gather with the people of God and celebrate them as a corporate redeemed people of God. And so they became corporate or national festivals in that way and new moon and sabbath has to do with the ordination of how the jewish religious calendar was to work both in a monthly sense the new moon phases and the weekly sense which is the entire week was really organized in relationship to or around the sabbath day so what paul is saying is don't let people judge you in relationship to how you understand and now as a new covenant believer are applying these Old Testament laws that have to do with the category of God's law that we call in theology the ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws had spiritual significance, but they don't function quite the same way as, for instance, like in the Ten Commandments. Just using one as an example, if you have a commandment that says, you shall not murder Uh, it's an easy question to ask and it's an easy answer for you to give which is does you shall not murder still apply to our lives today in a very direct way in other words since we're in the new covenant we're no longer in the old covenant since we belong to christ and we're no longer under moses's leadership in the same way that they were can we jettison you shall not murder and say well we are we're free in christ we can just murder anyone we want right so obviously that that would be a misunderstanding of that aspect of god's law and we call that the moral law in a theological category all of the laws have a moral sense to them and a moral aspect to them but some of them were more directly purposefully ceremonial And they were meant to be practiced in a very direct and literal way by Israel, but they have no continuing literal application to our lives following the coming of Christ because he fulfilled what they're pointing forward to. And that's why we're going to read verse 17 as well, which makes that point for us. And we're just following Paul's lead in that conclusion. Verse 17, these, and now he's lumping in, Old Covenant law, law of God, law of Moses, requirements about which foods were allowed to be eaten and which weren't, which drinks were allowed to be consumed and which weren't, which festivals to celebrate, uh, how how to organize your monthly calendar from a spiritual perspective and how to organize your weekly calendar from a spiritual perspective. These are a shadow of the things come and we've talked about this principle many times but i'll just take a moment to to rehearse it what does it mean that these things are a shadow shadows have no reality other than in relationship to something that is as paul describes later in this same verse substantive these are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to christ meaning it's the substance excuse me the substantive thing that casts the shadow and the shadow only has significance and meaning as it is connected to or related to the substance that's casting that shadow so paul's whole point about these ceremonial aspects of the law is that they all were designed by the lord and inspired by the lord to in some important way point forward in history to christ and then, of course, once he stepped onto the stage of history and took center stage, then those shadowy elements are no longer significant in the same way as they were before he stepped onto the stage of history. They're still significant, and we're actually focused on one of them this morning in our study, but they're only significant as they point forward to Christ. We're meant to see how they point to him, connect to him. And when we go back and study them, we're not studying them in order to say, hey, you know what? When was the last time we celebrated the day of Pentecost as an actual festival? When was the last time we left our homes on that day of the calendar year and flew to Jerusalem in order to look for the temple and in order to celebrate it in the way that it was ordained in the law? And the answer is, how many of you have ever celebrated the day of Pentecost in the way that I just described? Not one of us. Me neither. I haven't sinned in that failure to celebrate the day of Pentecost in that way. Neither have you. But for Old Covenant Israel, had they not done those things, they would have sinned. In fact, this out of the seven of the feast days, all seven were commanded by the Lord and required by the Lord. The people were held accountable to celebrate them. But three out of the seven, and pentecost is one of those three were required of every adult male israelite had to leave his house and go and meet with the people of god at the city of god at the temple of god or in earlier generations the tabernacle of the lord and follow through and celebrate it exactly as the lord had ordained so the very first feast the middle feast which is pentecost and then the very last feast were all required in that very specific way if they had not celebrated it they would have been accountable to the punishments of the law in a way that you and i are not when we don't follow in a literal word-for-word way what they were required to do but for us we study it for a different reason we study it for the connection to christ how in some way before christ ever arrived on the scene of history god was telling his story through these feast days now the feast days are not the only way god was telling his story in advance but they're an important way that god chose to tell the story of christ in advance and all seven feasts point to him all seven tell a different aspect of the story of christ in his person and in his saving work so what we're going to do here is go back then two and you can join me in this go back to the book of leviticus where we find the longest description it's not the only time in the law that the feast of pentecost is mentioned but it is the longest and most detailed mention of that feast so by the time we get to the events of acts chapter two this feast is called the feast of pentecost but Pentecost happens to be a Greek word and it certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have been the word that Moses used when he first wrote down these, uh, the laws of these feast days because they were not speaking Greek. They were speaking, of course, in the Hebrew language. Why the Greek word Pentecost is used is because the word Pentecost simply relates to a number on the calendar. It's the day of 50 and we'll talk about why is it the day of 50 and why is that an appropriate name for that particular feast day but the original terminology of this feast day was the feast of weeks and in the hebrew language it was known as the the feast of shavuot and so what is that all about let's read uh leviticus 23 is an interesting chapter to study if you ever want to learn about these seven special feast days that point to christ all seven of them are identified in this chapter and um the um the requirements on the people of god are are briefly laid out Uh, one of the longest ones is the feast of weeks and so let's read that which is verses 15 through 22 i'm going to read through it and then eventually in the study today i'm going to try to explain the main elements as they relate ultimately to Christ in a special way. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you were, and by the way, this is the Lord speaking through Moses to the people. After the Sabbath, from the day that you were brought, that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count 50 days. This is where we eventually get to the Pentecost terminology of 50 you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved. Literally on those days, they were to stand near the altar of God at the, at the tabernacle of the Lord and hold up these two Loaves of bread that they had brought, and they were to wave them back and forth before the Lord. I left off in, um, let me reread verse 17. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. That's just a, a measurement of a certain amount of flour that was used in the baking of these loaves of bread. They shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven. This is the only one of the seven feasts where it was allowed and not just allowed but required that they were to break leavened bread whereas one of the feasts that had preceded it was to be baked with unleavened bread. We'll talk in a minute about why the distinction between unleavened in one case and leavened in another. They shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings." and the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the lord with the two lambs they shall be holy to the lord for the priest meaning after the ceremony was completed after the waving and the offering to the lord they weren't then to take that food that they had offered to the lord and go back home and consume it themselves they were to leave it with the priest who then consumed it on behalf of the lord in a sense it was fully dedicated and left with the priesthood. And then um, they shall be holy to the Lord for the priests. In verse 21, and you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So even though this wasn't technically a Sabbath day, they were on this day to treat it somewhat similar to a sabbath day in that no one was allowed to do any of the normal responsibilities and work that would fill their normal days and then finally it is a statute forever not forever to the end of time but forever as long as the law of god applies in this way then you must follow this instruction from the lord it is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So there was an an inclusion here of a reminder to be kind and considerate and generous to those that were needy in their midst so that uh, they were not left without food not just to survive but food to actually celebrate the feast along with those that had more than enough all right so lots of details in the law of the feast of weeks later known as the feast of pentecost how many of you heard at least one detail here that you had never necessarily connected to the day of pentecost And if I had just read Acts chapter 2 verse 1 and said, we're just going to jump right into the events of what happened that day in Acts 2.1, the rushing mighty wind, the tongues of fire, speaking in tongues, the the people that gathered from the city, the proclamation of the gospel, Peter leading 3,000 to the Lord, all the events that were familiar that happened on the actual day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, how many of you would not necessarily, not necessarily have thought about all of these details when I just read that first phrasing, and we can go back to, uh, let's do that now, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. So when I read this phrase, when the day of Pentecost arrived, would all of those Law of Moses details have been firing off in your mind uh with with great familiarity and the answer is no because most of us were not raised in a household that would necessarily have reminded us of those things on an annual basis so there are jewish households today that continue not all jewish households do not all jewish households are even concerned to honor the law of god but some are in the way that they understand the law and uh, there are some that continue to Uh, honor the day of Pentecost and they don't call it so much Pentecost they call it Shavuot and uh, using their own language terminology and the terminology from the law Um, but they assign completely different meaning to it than what the Lord had originally communicated why is that well remember I said this is all about coming out of your home and traveling to Jerusalem and and presenting yourself before the the priesthood and the tabernacle and and doing a specific kind of wave offering and, and making specific kind of animal sacrifices to the Lord, um, how, how could that happen today? The answer is it couldn't happen today because Jerusalem still stands as a city and the actual location of where the temple of God was constructed in the city of Jerusalem, it is known and that location, that site is still there But there's no temple there any longer. There's no Levitical priest to meet you at the altar and then to wave your bread and your animal sacrifices before the Lord in this ceremony of dedication to the Lord. So in the events of 70 AD where the temple of God was destroyed by the Roman legions in the reconquest of the city of Jerusalem, the rabbis had a problem on their hands in the generations that immediately followed those events. And the problem was it changed a lot of the laws i'm not talking about all of the moral laws but the ceremonial laws were deeply impacted by the events of 70 a.d because we no longer have a temple and we no longer have a Levitica, levitical priesthood to um to lead us in these things as god had ordained and there was no allowance in the law just okay then do whatever you want on that day because I mean, that kind of kind of defeated the purpose and so what the rabbis decided to do is they said, well, let's just let's just decide on a biblical, a scriptural connection to the Feast of Weeks concept. And what they arrived at is they thought, you know what, we don't have any official celebration in our culture of a reminder of the giving of law of the law on Mount Sinai when, when Moses first brought the Ten Commandments down. So they chose to connect the Feast of Weeks, what we we call Pentecost, with the giving of the law, as as though God had wanted them to remember that the law was given by celebrating this particular feast in the way that they did. Uh, and that's how they have followed it for all the generations from 70 AD until now. The problem is those events that happened on that day had very specific spiritual uh, symbolic connections both to events in their past and events in their future. And when you change those connections, you change the significance and the meaning of the feast itself. And so what we're going to consider is how the feast was originally given. We're not, my goal is not to get you to practice the literal aspect of it, but understand the spiritual principles that are involved. All right, so the original feast was to be celebrated on a very specific date on the calendar. But it was hard to plan ahead in one sense because like um, for, for our calendar, I'll just use a familiar uh, holiday that we celebrate. Christmas is celebrated on what day of our calendar year? And it's pretty consistent because it happens on the same date on the calendar every year. December 25th, everybody knows that. I don't have to coach you about that. So the day of Pentecost was not linked to a specific day on the calendar in that way. There was a date on the calendar that was settled. And that was the feast that immediately preceded Pentecost, which was the Feast of First Fruits. Pentecost was only known in terms of how we arrive at the day to celebrate Pentecost by literally counting seven full and complete weeks after the Feast of First Fruits and then add one day. And you come, because seven times seven is forty-nine, and then the next day on the calendar would be the 50th day from the Feast of First Fruits. And so the way they calendared Pentecost was just by counting from the previous feast. Now the hint in there for our heart's perspective and where we're going to end up in our study this morning is that there's a spiritual principle pointing to Christ in the Feast of First Fruits that's linked to the spiritual principle that's revealed in the day of Pentecost, and we're not meant to separate those two concepts. We only have the second one because of the reality of the first one. Second, the day of Pentecost was a harvest festival. The highlight of the day, even though other things were to be done on that day by way of offerings and sacrifices, the highlight of the day was the two loaves of bread that were brought and waved before the Lord. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then you have these specific animal sacrifices that were to be offered. There was to be a sin offering, there was to be a fellowship offering, there was to be a burnt offering, and then there was to be a peace offering. So all four of these offerings were to be made, and these are animal sacrifices that were linked to the celebration of this harvest festival. And then finally, the detail that this was to be a day of no work among all that came to worship the Lord in that way. All right, so that's the practical, detailed reality of what happened on the, on the annual celebration of the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. What does this all have to do with Christ? The question we're meant to ask as disciples of the Lord studying all of God's word, not just the New Testament portions, is in what way? do those does the feast as a whole but those details of the feast in what way do they point forward to christ all right let's turn first to first corinthians 15 how many of you are familiar without me giving you the detailed connection How many of you are familiar with the connection to the day of Pentecost that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the the famous, most detailed study that Paul does anywhere in God's word on the principle of the resurrection? So I don't see a lot of hands up. That's because it's just not a, a connection that we would ordinarily make, but it's a super important one. Remember I said in the calendaring of the festival days pentecost wasn't linked to a specific day on the calendar except by counting 50 days beyond a first and significant feast day which was the feast of first fruits so the key word there is first fruits i'm not going to take us through a whole study of the feast of first fruits i just want you to remember that key word because paul intentionally connects it to christ here in first corinthians 15 and in a very special and important way we're reading for 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. It would be worthwhile to read all the 20 verses before this or 19 verses before this, but for our time, let's just jump right in the middle. but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep as you understand is just a euphemism to state people have died but state it in a more polite way because to all observation people that die seem to be like they're sleeping to the world around them and it also points out of course that ultimately and biblical perspective death is not a final end death of the physical body because there is a coming great day of resurrection in the future but paul says in fact christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death by a man also has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die so also in christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order christ the first fruits then it is coming and here he's referencing what we know to be the second coming of christ then at his coming those who belong to christ then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to god the father after destroying every rule every authority and power all right so twice in these verses Paul Paul connects the concept of first fruits to Christ and keep in mind Paul was a before he was saved he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees that's his own testimony his own self-description what does he mean by Pharisee of the Pharisees that means even among the Pharisees who were very conscientious in their study of the law of Moses Paul was exceptionally conscientious he put other Pharisees to shame in how how greatly he gave time and effort to study the laws of Moses. Paul would never, ever, ever have used a term like first fruits, coincidentally or accidentally, and applying it to Christ. It was a very purposeful connection, and first fruits was pointing to the feast of first fruits but here in what sense is christ appropriately connected to the feast of first fruits he's it's a connection in relationship to the real event in history of his being raised from the dead and christ is the first fruits of then what we can call the resurrection the idea being biblically that eventually all human beings will be resurrected jesus taught in the gospel of john chapter five you can look it up in your own time i won't take us there or directly quote it but in john five jesus taught that all human beings are going to be resurrected some to a resurrection of reward and glory and eternal fellowship with god and others are going to be resurrected only for the purpose of facing the judgment of the lord in terms of uh, being held accountable to god's final judgment on that day but christ is the first in history to be resurrected never to die again but his resurrection is tied to the remaining that are going to be resurrected when he returns just like in the feast of first fruits it was the beginning it signaled the beginning of the harvest time in israel the very first sheaves of wheat that were gathered were called the first fruits Pentecost was a harvest festival but it was a celebration of the culmination of the harvest not the beginning of the harvest and it was linked to the first fruits harvest by way of calendaring it so there's some important principle in terms of what the day of Pentecost signifies so if Christ was the first fruits pointing forward to Pentecost the first to be raised from the dead What does Pentecost ultimately then signify? The rest are being raised from the dead. Now, on the day of Pentecost, were any of the 120 disciples, the faithful ones, the ones that were praying in the upper room, the ones that were filled with the Spirit in the first four verses of Acts chapter 2, were any of them physically raised from the dead? The Answer is no. But they were spiritually raised from the dead their experience was a spiritual resurrection because for many of them, this was their actual new birth moment experience. And then they were immediately filled with the Spirit of God. And so there is a linking between these two great events. Now, that tells us that Pentecost is fully dependent upon the resurrection of Christ. And so let's go back now to Acts, but instead of chapter 2, Let's just review something that we studied in some detail, I think, in Acts chapter 1. We could look at it as coincidence or purposeful. And I think you uh, understand that I'm going to be aiming at the purposeful conclusion here, rather than the coincidental one. Acts 1.1. One, one in the first book of theophilus i've dealt with all that jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the holy spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of god now we talked in detail about this 40 day mention here Uh, when did the 40 days begin Jesus is going to appear to his disciples. We totaled up in our study in chapter 1 10 specific resurrection appearances between Jesus and his disciples when he appeared to them, made himself known to them, proved to them that he really had physically risen from the dead and, as this describes, spoke to them about the unfolding fulfillment of God's purposes in his kingdom that were now upon them, that they were in the midst of, they were experiencing. But that 40-day time period had a starting point, a specific starting point. When did it start? It started the day Jesus rose from the dead. So counting from his resurrection from the dead, which would be the new covenant fulfillment of the first fruits festival concept, Counting forward from that day, you count forward 40 days. He's spending this time interacting with his disciples. And then at a certain point, as we get down to verses 9 through 13, we studied that, we read that, we understand that Jesus left them one final time. During the 40 days, he would come and go. He would leave them regularly during those 40 days. But later in chapter 1, he leaves them one final time because. He is leaving this world altogether and he ascends back to heaven back to the place where he uh, where he started his journey into this world and so from 40 days of resurrection appearances we have the ascension of christ and then the disciples are left with instructions by the lord to wait and to to uh, stay in jerusalem and they're praying faithfully in the upper room how many days were they praying in the upper room 10 days so this is some high level math i'm not sure everyone can follow me but 40 plus 10 equals 50 days and so it just so happens that from the resurrection of christ to the day of pentecost as now the disciples experience it in new covenant fullness and fulfillment there's exactly 50 days Is it accidental? Is it coincidental that the day of Pentecost is 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, just like in the Old Covenant festival calendar, the day of the Feast of Weeks was 50 days after the day of the celebration of first fruits, which points to the resurrection of Christ? The answer is no. God ordained, this is why the Lord had told them after the 40 days when He's leaving and ascending, do not leave the city. You've got to remain here. He didn't tell them, wait here until the day of Pentecost arrives. He just told them to wait for the fulfillment of the promise that he had given to them that he was going to send the Holy Spirit from heaven. So they're just waiting. They don't necessarily even see the connections that we're describing this morning until the day arrives, until the event happens. And then I think certainly Peter and the other apostles understood the kind of connections we're drawing from this interesting spiritual uh, calendaring of these events and how they're unfolding. So, what does the Day of Pentecost ultimately mean? The Church, for the last two thousand years, has historically and rightly so identified the Day of Pentecost as the beginning of what? What is the What is the Day of Pentecost the beginning of? What we call the Church. This is the formal and official beginning of Christianity as we know it. The Church as we know it. Now, I will say this, technically, the church did not begin on the day of Pentecost. We studied with the Lord Jesus in his in his time with his disciples the last night before he went to the cross. We call it the Last Supper, and he he, uh, among the other events, he fed them bread and wine at a specific moment in the evening. And when he did, he he said these words that we regularly remember as we celebrate what we call communion. And he said, This is my body, this is, this, is, this is my blood. And when he said, This is my blood, he he added these words, this is the new covenant in my blood. And what's officially happening there is the church is formed in that moment. The, the church is formed when the Lord says the church is formed. But in terms of public acknowledgement public knowledge public recognition that some new thing is happening in the earth that certainly hasn't happened because it was just jesus and the 11 disciples in that upper room that night now we get to the day of pentecost and yes it starts in the same upper room and there's now 120 not 11 But what happens later in chapter two, and you all know the story, it spills out into the streets. It can't be contained to that room in the same sense that the church is never meant to be contained in the four walls where we meet. What the Lord is doing in our midst is meant to spill out and affect the world around us. And it certainly did on that day. It was such a powerful effect that um, all of the city of Jerusalem gathered to find out what was happening. And as they gathered, Peter stands in the midst, proclaims the gospel, and 3,000 souls are saved by the Lord in that day. So fulfillment, day of, celebration of harvest. The celebration of harvest is the celebration of the ingathering of all of the wheat that the Lord intends to call or make his own. We even have parables in our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We saw there's a, a parable where the Lord uh, identifies wheat with his people. And I'm talking about the individual grains of wheat that are harvested are representative of a saved and transformed and dedicated person that belongs to the Lord. So Pentecost is pointing forward to that, of course. Now, there's some details that happen on the day of Pentecost. And I have just enough time to just briefly cover these details. Remember I said the highlight was they were to take two loaves of bread and they were to wave it before the Lord. So, one, why loaves of bread? Meaning, you know, what, what's what's the point of that? Well, I've just highlighted that God's saved people are made uh, to connect symbolically to wheat, and so the the loaves are representative of now not just individual people, but what happens when you take a bunch of individual grains of wheat and grind them up into flour, and add some water and add some other elements. And then bake them in your oven it becomes one loaf how many of you are ever made like if you have a hundred grains of individual wheat you're familiar with how big a grain of wheat is right it's very small do you make a hundred individual little baby loaves little miniature loaves you don't do that you you grind them up and you mix them together so that you can make one big loaf you then break it up and chew it and consume it but the point being that the loaf more represents not just the individuals that are saved but the church that's gathered unto the lord's people but then the second question is why leavened all of the other feasts required if bread was involved in them required unleavened bread and there was one special feast where it was all about getting the leaven out of your house and and baking bread, but it was flat bread without any, any yeast element that would cause that loaf to rise. And if they added any leaven to it, it was not acceptable before the Lord. Well, I'm not gonna go back into a whole explanation of what that was about, but I will say this why leaven bread here in a celebration that's to point forward to the church and the, the, the salvation, the ingathering of God's people? Well, the church has a purpose. And in all of the parables that we studied in Matthew chapter 13, one of them was a parable about leaven. It's math in, you can read this in your own time if you're taking notes. It's Matthew 13, One single verse parable. Very tiny or, or short parable. But it was a kingdom parable. And it describes how the Lord is at work in saving his people. And it uses the element of, of a woman hiding leaven in flour And then baking with that, and how that leaven affects the whole lump of dough. The idea here, or what's being communicated, is the concept of of what we would call permeating influence. The leaven added to the flour eventually works its way through the entire flour, permeates the entire loaf, so that the whole loaf is affected in a pleasing way to the person that's baking it. What does that have to do with the church? the church is hidden in the world the church is not obvious to everybody in the world i mean yes we have a physical presence and people driving by can see the building and say there's a church over there but our real impact in the world isn't the fact that we're meeting in a building that's on a corner that people can point to and say there's a church where is our real impact in the culture that surrounds us it's a hidden influence but it's nevertheless meant to be a permeating, powerful influence you are meant to leave this building and go out and interact with other people that don't know the Lord. And you're to have an influence on them. It may be as strong as a saving influence or it may just be as, as l- a little bit less strong but no less significant and important an influence on what you believe, how you live, and how that represents something to those people that do not believe those same things and are not living in the way that you're living. The church is meant to have this permeating influence. And so in the feast that was most directly connected to the church, the Lord had the bread baked with leaven in it. And then why two loaves? This goes back to the core issue that, that troubled the church throughout all of its early generation. And that is, the church was ultimately to be made up of two kinds of people. And those two people, up until this point in history, had no... No good connection, no good relationship to each other. They viewed each other as, as enemies. But ultimately, the Lord was combining the two in one great saving and redeeming purpose. The two kinds of people were Jewish people and Gentile people. And so the Lord had in this, this festival that highlights his work in the church, he had a waving of two loaves before the Lord rather than just one singular big loaf. Now, what's the waving all about? Waving had to do with dedication. It was like holding something up and saying, this belongs to you, Lord. This is holy yours. And of course, the church is to be a a, a wholly owned institution, wholly owned not by the people that are part of it. We don't own the church. It doesn't belong to us. We all belong to the Lord. It's his work. He's the one that said, as we saw in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church. It's his one project that he's at work to accomplish in history. Now, there are different elements of the animal sacrifices that were offered. Sin offering, fellowship offering, burn offering, and peace offering. What do those point to? Those are each one is studying themselves. I'll just give you a simple phrase, though, to connect the concepts. Sin offerings, the main point was this. You don't deserve the blessing. Your sin has disconnected you from the lord and unless that's made right by a sacrifice you cannot enjoy the blessings that only come from being in right relationship with the lord so there is an incredible blessing poured out for the 120 disciples on the day of pentecost they only receive that blessing because of the sacrifice of christ on the cross second fellowship offering That was all about a signification that you were about to enter into and experience and enjoy from this point forward. A new and greater level of relationship with God than you've ever enjoyed before, that you've ever known before. And certainly the day of Pentecost fulfilled that. These 120 had a relationship with the Lord, they were waiting on the Lord, they were praying, but as soon as they were filled with the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost, Their relationship with God changed in a new and deeper and greater way, a way that they could not have described to you and explained to you before they actually experienced it. But it was a permanent new level of relationship with him. Burnt offering, that's just an offering category from God's law that signified what is being burnt on the altar before the Lord belongs entirely to him. Even the priests were not allowed To consume that a whole burnt offering was entirely dedicated to the Lord the church is meant to be that kind of body we are completely dedicated to him we belong to him not to ourselves as David was emphasizing earlier in the communion exhortation and then finally peace offering Uh, it's when the spirit of God comes to dwell in our hearts that we experience the fullness of peace with God and all of the implications of this his son's saving sacrifice on the cross are fully worked out into the context of our life and our relationship with him. Final detail it was a day of rest. Don't work on this day. What does that tell us? The the work of the day of Pentecost is not your work. It's nothing you can accomplish. It's nothing you can bring about. This is all directly connected to what Christ did on the cross and it's a completed work. You don't have to strive for all of the benefits of what are to be experienced from flowing out of the day of Pentecost. This is a gift, it's grace, it's God's generous work in your heart. All right, let's pray. Father, as we have just looked at uh, the background of this day in order to carry forward into our study in Acts chapter 2 the kinds of things that you were at work to accomplish in their lives I pray that we would see the connection for what you have accomplished in our lives as well as you've laid your hand upon us, you've saved us, you've made us your own, and then have filled us with your spirit for your great purpose. I pray that we would, we would uh, be blessed by understanding all those connection points and see how meticulously you planned it all for the understanding and the, uh, the blessing of your people. We thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.